Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have Joshua and Angela back with me. And we are going to talk about antidepressant medications and how to remember them. So we've had a number of podcasts up to this point. We've had podcasts on TCAs. That was with uh, Brandon Trujillo, Natalie Pratt. They were married about a year ago, if I remember correctly. Jason Hemingway also uh, jumped in on that one. I think he went into psychiatry, if I remember correctly. We have a podcast on monoamine oxidase inhibitors that came in uh, as well with that group, uh, although we had way too many people around the microphone at that point. I think we had both Brandon and uh, Natalie, and then we also had Kim Meekham and Rhett Dotson. Uh, those two did a number of podcasts looking at uh, monoamine monoamines in terms of the dopamine system. And then Angelo uh, Garcia sat in with us on that one. Angelo later de developed in a podcast on atypical uh, antidepressants. And Angelo, uh, that, that podcast had a pretty significant discussion about the development of monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So we had the MAOIs and how to use them in the depression series with Brandon and Natalie, and then we had kind of that deeper dive on what's called atypical depression with Angelo. Rhett and Cam also jumped in on that. And uh, of course we had a more recent podcast on the dopamine hypothesis. I think that was with uh, Hope and um, Hope and Cheyenne, just about lost names there again for a minute. And of course we had a whole bunch of podcasts with Cam. I think Rhett jumped in on a few of these as well that were related to stimulants. And so we've, we've had a number of podcasts that have looked at um, monoamines, they seem to be, f the molecules associated with monoamines mm -hmm. seem to be fairly closely related. And so there's, there's, there's a lot happening in this area and it's very difficult to keep track of all of these things. So this podcast is a podcast that the two of you suggested, I think, to yeah. try and say, hey, how do we better understand antidepressants and, and be more ready on the shelf exam? So that's the goal of this podcast is to take um, maybe a lot of the things we've done before and then make it more memorable for the test. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Maybe a streamlined approach for people that aren't super interested in the nitty-gritty, but how to approach this to be able to understand and not get tripped up so easily. So this is this entire podcast is largely how do I answer the questions related to antidepressants on the shelf? Yeah. yeah, tried to be pulled together in, in one podcast. Mm -hmm. All right, so I uh, I want to start with very brief introductions, or maybe not so brief. Joshua, tell me a little. I think Angela, you started last time, so we'll we'll uh, have Joshua do a little bit of a an introduction this time and start, and then we'll go back to you. Yeah, yeah. I'm Joshua. I'm a medical student, a third year medical student from Rocky Vista University, and interested in psychiatry. Uh, so. I thought that I would be super good just naturally at understanding antidepressants and uh, other psychopharmacology, but I have uh, I've learned that this is a trickier pharmacological system. is is uh, psychiatric meds and antidepressants are no different. So I was excited to study this more thoroughly and and try to give a few tips for people that like me that were struggling at first with these. Yeah. Uh, I'm Angela. I'm also a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. Um, I think many of us do struggle with especially the antidepressants. Um, for me, I've always tried to find ways to separate drugs and, and a lot of other medications kind of 
give us that easily with like our our beta blockers with the the lulls and our you know suffixes suffixes and things like that whereas (laughs) a lot of these antidepressants they have slightly different mechanisms of actions and a lot of times they have different side effects too Um, but a lot of them tend to end in ene which is a big struggle for me so um, trying to organize these in a way that my brain can understand them is has been a struggle so now you put together a sheet and I think we're going to try and make that available yes I've seen some uh, amazing things put together by the students and I, I like what you've done to the point that I'm hoping we can steal that so yeah. we'll, we'll see if we can make that available later so I'm going to start the discussion um, I want to go back to the 1950s so there was a boom in psychiatric pharmacology at the time remember the prevailing attitude in the early 1950s was a drug alone, uh, the idea that a drug alone could cure depression was implausible. That was the thinking. It's implausible that a drug could cure depression. And maybe that's true, um, but I think there was so much belief against the effectiveness of medications that really the focus was on psychotherapy largely, right? Mm-hmm. And and perhaps thank goodness because we now have some um, non-pharmacological tools to help treat our patients. We also have a number of other tools that are available. Those are uh, discussed in other podcasts like uh, RTMS and uh, ITMS. So there was a consideration at the time that endogenous depression would be treated through ECT. That was the only treatment that really affected that. And reactive depression, so something bad happens and I develop a depression. That was something that was treated with psychotherapy. Um, but there's a guy named J.R. Geige, and he's working in uh, Switzerland. Um, Dr. I'm sorry, let me back up. Dr. Roland Kuhn is working in uh, treating patients with schizophrenia. He's in Switzerland, and he has a collaboration ongoing with J.R. Geige Pharmaceuticals, and and I think that's actually led by J.R. Geige himself at this time. And he says essentially, hey, give me some more phenothiazines. Now, phenothiazines, we have had this discussion before about the Rubiaceae family plant that was stolen in the middle of the night from Peru, taken to uh, Java, right, to be able to grow and use this intermediate precursor. Um, methylene blue, I think, right? They're looking for dyes associated with phenothiazines. A lot of things were studied and then serendipitously uh, the group in France found that these medications would help patients with schizophrenia. So these phenothiazines. And and Roland Kuhn says to J.R. Geige, uh, I'm sure he emailed him back in the uh, (laughs) 1950s and said, hey, do you have any more medications? Because not, you know, the medications we have don't help everybody. What what can we what can we try? And so uh, the way I read one of the articles by uh, Dr. Lopez Munoz, who seems to be one of the preeminent writers about the history of antidepressant discovery and and how he thinks about serendipity. I think that's a big part of how he writes about this. He he says that they dusted off some of their old phenothiazines that they had tried to use as dyes. Uh, antihistamines, hypnotics, and so forth, and sent them out. And uh, they had a molecule, imipramine, that had a side chain that looked a lot like chlorpromazine. And uh, Dr. Kuhn, with these these phenothiazines from uh, J.R. Geige, gives these medications to his patients, 
and a whole bunch of them get worse, apparently because the phenothiazine they were already on was helpful, I, I presume. That's not explicitly written anywhere that I see. And then three of the patients have this remarkable antidepressant effect. Kuhn, the way that the articles I read re relate this story, says that patients who were affectively dulled suddenly brighten up, want to talk to people, want to engage. Right? The depression, the change in depression is profound. And so uh, Dr. Kuhn writes what is described by uh, Dr. Lopez Munoz as this really amazing uh, article with excellent detail after they do a study, I think, on about 100 patients or so. He presents the data to a huge meeting where almost a dozen people showed up to his lecture. And we're off to the races with what become tricyclic antidepressants. So these tricyclic antidepressants are serendipitously discovered while trying to use phenothiazines for the treatment of schizophrenia. And if you remember going back to some of our previous discussions about schizophrenia, this story fits in with those. Um, so, so now we have TCAs. The first one is imipramine. It was called G22355. And again, didn't help with psychosis, but helps with depression. Now, at about the same time, remember, we have monoamine oxidases that were discovered again serendipitously in the treatment of tuberculosis. Iproniazid, I think, was the uh, TB agent that, that was found to help with depression, and they tried to uh, describe who really would benefit from this medication. They described atypical depression because this was liver toxic, right, hepatotoxic, and they didn't want to give this medication to anybody. Now, interestingly enough, TCAs clobber monoamine oxidase inhibitors. TCAs developed in, in Europe and uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors developed in the United States. And the reason they clobber them is, is pretty obvious, even though TCAs have some challenges, and we'll talk about those in a moment. Uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors have huge dietary restrictions, right? Mm -hmm. Aged foods mm -hmm. seem to create a, a chemical tyramine, if I remember correctly, that really messes up uh, the monoamine oxidase inhibitors leading to a hypertensive crisis, um, among other things. So because that is so challenging to overcome in so many patients, the TCAs win the battle, right? And then after the TCAs uh, come out, then everything follows maybe, what, 10 to 20 years later, and I think that's where the two of you are going to pick up the story. Um, I'll add just very briefly that amitriptyline um, was developed near the same time as imipramine. Merck was developing this, and it was also intended to be an antipsychotic. It didn't work that way. They tried it um, in patients with depression, found that it was very helpful, and so there were a lot of Me Too antidepressant medications that emerged. I think the shelf exam focuses on imipramine and amitriptyline. Interestingly mm -hmm. enough, um, there are at times in the more advanced psychiatric shelf exams, I think they talk about desipramine, which is a urinary metabolite of imipramine, and they also sometimes talk about nortriptyline, which I believed, but didn't see this in my reading today, was a metabolite of amitriptyline. And there's some subtle differences in those two medications with the primary medications, the TCAs being uh, largely um, serotonergic, and then if I understand correctly, the secondary amines, uh, nortriptyline and desipramine, being somewhat more uh, noradrenergic in effect. Uh, 
Um, so in a sense, the TCAs were our first SNRIs, but yeah. they weren't selective. They were more like shotgun blast. Shotgun blast, yeah. maybe. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I'm going to uh, hand this story over to you guys. Tell me where we're going from here. How do we now um, understand all of the antidepressant medications that are out there? How about if we start off with somebody giving me kind of a grouping of the antidepressants? Um, yeah, I can go ahead and uh, take that. So from our MAOIs and our uh, tricyclic antidepressants, um, I think the biggest thing was trying to find the same or similar efficacy with safer medications. So that's where our SSRIs, our selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, come into play um, because those uh, had relatively uh, similar uh, outcomes, but um, less severity for overdose. So tricyclic antidepressants are pretty uh, easy to, to take enough to overdose on, whereas the uh, SSRIs are not. Um, and then from there, um, trying to address a lot of the side effect profiles uh, that SSRIs can have, uh, we get a lot of our SNRIs coming into play, as well as the uh, newer medications like um, bupropion and I can't remember the word I used. Uh, the um, heterocyclics. Heterocyclics, yes. Yeah, some of the medications. I think the heterocyclics, and I could be wrong if somebody has that here. Um, I think the heterocyclics Are those, uh, might be things like is it meprotoline? Um, and yes. then there's and then there's sort of these alpha two adrenergic mm -hmm. receptors like mertazapine, yep. and and a couple of other oddballs that do things in addition. We have. Mm -hmm two newer medications. I always forget the name of those. Um, um, yeah, and then we have medications like uh, trazodone um, that also affect uh, serotonin, but you have some, you know, benefits and, uh, and drawbacks to that one as well. Um, so that's kind of where I, I have kind of split up each by their overarching category of SSRI, SNRI, tricyclics and tried to create kind of a profile of um, why why we have these drugs, why they're being used, and the history, I think, of these medications kind of helps because you have things like tricyclic antidepressants, which worked great, but um, had such uh, lethality and overdose and a lot of side effects that people were trying to address. Yeah. All right, so let's start off with um, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Tyramine? Mm -hmm. is that, and that is the, the aged food, or is it tyrosine that's the aged food? Tyramine, right? Tyramine. 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 Yeah. Tyramine. And that can give you a hypertensive crisis that can also be somewhat worse than that, right? Yes. And there are a couple of things you need to know on the shelf exam about monoamine oxidase inhibitors. I think phenylzine is the one that's most often mentioned. Yeah. That's yeah, the one and, that uh, comes up the most. I think, is it sedgeline? Selegiline is a patch that's used now. So it's a monoamine oxidase. It's a B-specific, monoamine yeah. B-specific. And I think the uh, dietary restrictions are less with that. Yes. It has, it has come up in uh, a couple of my questions. Um, more as a distractor, I think, than anything. But it was something that distracted me a few times into to thinking that it had something to do with uh, the patient's problem. So The other question that seems to come up with these medications with the monoamine oxidase inhibitors is, let's say that you have somebody that is on an antidepressant, a TCA, an SSRI, an SNRI, um, and you want to stop that medication and start an MAOI. Mm -hmm. How do you go about that? 
So with, with that, we're talking about potentially getting into the weeds of serotonin syndrome. Um, for most SSRIs, you're going to need two weeks. With fluoxetine, is a more long-acting one. Uh, six weeks is a good benchmark. I've seen in my review book for first date, it says five to six weeks, but I think most board exams will, will play it safe in six weeks. And you have to be careful about that because a lot of the questions will be straightforward and give you a switch that happened in a couple of days. And then you get the flushing, the diaphoresis, and the other symptoms of serotonin syndrome. But I have also been tripped up on a question in which an SSRI is switched to an MAOI, but it was uh, but symptoms start popping up within three weeks. So all of a sudden, this serotonin syndrome looking uh, uh, looking disorder pops up. But knowing that two weeks is enough time outside of fluoxetine, yeah, outside of fluoxetine, um, because I think it was sertraline was the SSRI that we were switching from. Uh, tripped me up because I, I saw that SSRI to MAOI switch and then I immediately went down, looked at the symptoms, picked it and got it wrong. Uh, but knowing that time frame is very important. And so this was uh, a hypertensive crisis then and not a serotonin syndrome? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any other MAOI questions that you need to know. I don't think so. No. Um, one thing that just... Um, I've seen pop up a couple of times, I think we just talked about it right before we started, is um, looking out for an MAOI plus another um, serotonergic agent like uh, your your tryptans, like migraine medications and things like yeah. that Okay. Uh, to keep in, just in the back of your mind, not necessarily so much prevalent on, on board exams, but... So be aware of all serotonergic aware. medications. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. The MAOI questions tend to be a little bit funny, too. Uh, Angela and I were going through a question together before the podcast in which a person's diet was described as primarily containing avocado, super ripened bananas, and lots of beer, which seems like a very odd dinner. So, you know, a lot of these questions have... Yes. Very curious diet, like patients with dietary preferences, um, or you have the people coming back from a vacation in Germany and from Oktoberfest and all of a sudden crashing and stuff like that. So some of these questions can get very funny with the dietary stuff with the tyramine foods. I always had a tough time remembering all of the dietary foods. What got, what made that easier for me was aged foods. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Aged foods. Um, <laughs> that's great. One other thing thing to remember is that um, there are also a couple of medications that are monoamine oxidase inhibitors that are not antidepressants. There's an antibiotic that was developed, I want to say about 15 years ago, and I can't remember the name of it to save my life yeah. at the moment. And so uh, just be aware that there might be an antidepressant, I'm sorry, there might be an antibiotic out there that's used frequently for um, breakthrough infections. Yeah. Um, so possibly look for question stems in which somebody comes from a hospital stay from an infection and then all of a sudden is developing a serotonin-like syndrome. I actually possibly. think it would happen in the hospital stay yeah. because I think it was an IV anti, uh, anti, oh, um, antibiotic. All right, so let's make that transition. MAOIs were replaced by TCAs. Mm -hmm. So TCAs, tell me, tell me what kinds of things you need to know about TCAs. I... So like, uh, like Angela, I've approached antidepressants 
um, from the standpoint of a video game nerd and loving uh, Legend of Zelda games, and you have this little Triforce symbol. And antidepressants, you can see, affect, uh, you know, you have your three big monoamines, serotonin, dopamine, and uh, norepinephrine are the big ones, right? And mm -hmm. so you look at questions thinking about how a patient needs to have one, maybe two, maybe all three adjusted in their syndrome. So with tricyclic antidepressants, we're looking mostly at serotonin and norepinephrine. Um, so that's going to be the big one for your method of action. Are there questions that show up with TCAs very often? Yes, uh, I've been getting a lot. It's more specifically in the recognition of a TCA overdose. Yeah. Um, and what do you need to see? So, so what does a, a TCA overdose look like? Um, a lot of times you'll get the patient, um, they'll say they're uh, confused, they say they'll have uh, midriasis, dry mucous membranes, maybe even possibly urinary retention or um, constipation, which are those anticholinergic effects that you get with the uh, tricyclic antidepressants. Um, the most, uh, one of them, one of the more, um, how do you say this, like classic things that they'll give you in yeah. the question stem is something to do with their EKG. Um, they'll yeah. usually have uh, either an increased PR interval or widening QRS, or even a lot of times they'll give you something that is even progressed to the point of the ventricular tachycardia, or uh, it looks like a torsadista point. So yeah. um, those are the big, that's the big thing that kind of, to me, shows that this patient is most likely having a, a tricyclic antidepressant overdose. In fact, I had a question recently that it was classic tricyclic antidepressant syndrome coming into an ER. And the question was, what should be the next thing that you do? But they didn't give you an ECG. So to back up Angela's points on ECG patterns, the answer ended up being get an ECG to make sure and confirm that we're getting cardiotoxicity from the TCA instead of moving on to the antidote, which would be a sodium bicarbonate infusion to mm -hmm. try to kind of stabilize. Do, stabilize. do the test questions actually ask about sodium bicarbonate infusion? I got a couple, yeah. Wow. I did not know that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So in an emergency department, so look at those TCA questions because the heart problems are going to be what are the most lethal in the in the immediate time frame. So get an ECG first, but if you have an ECG, move on to knowing that those TCAs are messing with the sodium fluctuations in the heart and a sodium bicarbonate infusion would be a good next step as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, TCAs also have the same problems with serotonin syndrome. I think we've tackled yes. those already. There's not an unusually long uh, half-life molecule that I'm aware of. So I, th I think that really you need to know cardiotoxicity and you need to know general serotonin. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then what, what is, what's also interesting though, and you mentioned this uh, a few minutes ago, the, the TCAs also have some problems with uh, acetylcholine, right? Yes. And so you'll see some of those, uh, what is it, mad as a hat or dry as a bone. Yeah. And, and so you'll see some changes in the eyes that sometimes show up on, on exams. So if you see any of the, any of those, and it is, um, uh, is it uh, glaucoma? Mm, I think oh, it's more yes, mitriasis, does, right? Um, I think that does sound familiar. They haven't really, in my questions that I've done, they haven't really pushed too hard on the 
think is it an opening glaucoma that it I think so, yeah. And I think um, it's specific with either desipramine or mm-hmm. nortriptyline, and yeah. I don't recall which. Yeah, and I, I think um, when it comes to, you know, doing your shelf or doing your boards, those those are the, the types of questions that are going to get you, you know, those extra points. But overall, um, rare. They're, they're more rare. They're going to get you that, you know, at a boy or at a girl at the at the end of the test okay. instead of the the main big picture that most of the questions are going to try to address. Okay. So we're going to move now to SSRIs. Now, I'm, I'm aware that there are some other oddball antidepressants. We'll call those miscellaneous. I'm also aware of the alpha-2 uh, medications. And I'm uh, also aware of some of the serotonin receptor antagonists. I think we'll try and categorize them kind of that way. Mm-hmm. But let's go ahead and go to SSRIs, leaving out SNRIs at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Now the SSRIs really have never been replaced. No. They seem to have replaced the TCAs because they're not particularly toxic. We have found some problems with uh, toxicity with paroxetine. You mm-hmm. might see some test questions that show up with paroxetine. Do you know what they are? Yeah, they, they tend to be uh, anticholinergic questions. In, in my in recognizing paroxetine's tendency to give you those anticholinergic uh, effects, in my experience. You might see some of that with sedation. You can mm-hmm. also see some uh, discontinuation syndrome with paroxetine. Mm-hmm. It has a short half-life. Mm-hmm. Discontinuation seems to be associated with that. Yeah. The yes. questions that I think are going to start showing up or are now showing up more often are the questions about fetal development. Mm-hmm. right? So I think there are fetal development issues that very infrequently happen with paroxetine and perhaps citalopram. Yeah. Is that in there somewhere? Have you seen those? I know that fluoxetine has, be, has been pushed more and more as the pregnancy safe option. Uh, and so I think that because we know fluoxetine is pregnancy safe, you're right, I think we're going to get more questions about which ones are not pregnancy safe. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably a decent way of, of thinking about it. Not only do you, which one would you choose, but which ones do you not choose. And is, has citalopram also started showing up with some cardiac kinds of things on the shelf yeah. exam questions? Uh, not so much on the shelf exam questions that I've seen, but in our review books they have been bringing up the, uh, is it the QT? prolongation mm-hmm. again yeah yeah okay and then uh let's see fluoxetine uh this was the first antidepressant we actually talked with a person a couple of days ago who was a farmer rep for fluoxetine and he talked about this remarkable transformation of treatment of depression only in psychiatric offices to treatment of depression in primary care physicians offices mm-hmm. right yeah. and the reason is the safety there are still a few things you need to watch out for as a class with ssris have you had questions on uh, risks associated with children and suicidal thinking that is associated with the use of antidepressants if so yeah. tell me about those yeah so i uh I remember a question specifically in which parents bring a kid in, uh, a late, later adolescent, uh, the diagnosis is given to you as MDD and they are placed on an SSRI and then the question stem or lead in is what should be the most applicable uh, guidance that you give the parents and that is related to the boxed warning of increased suicidality. So make sure that you know, you could you could then be asked to recognize any of the big risk factors for suicidality, like if they have guns or firearms, make sure that they're in a safe, maybe even remove them from the house, look for signs of suicidality, those kind of things that you're ask. supposed to, yeah, ask your kids, make sure that the parents understand that 
these might pop up and they might pop up suddenly. So be attentive. I, I think there's also, um, I've had some students talk to me about this, the answers also including frequent follow-up in mm -hmm. the primary mm -hmm. care office. Uh, Prozac seems to maybe be the, I, I don't know that there's any changes in boxed warnings among these, but my impression is that there are some questions that suggest prox I'm sorry, fluoxetine is the treatment of choice in adolescence as well because there seems to be somewhat less risk associated with that suicidality. Mm -hmm. Have you come across any questions along those lines? Um, yes and no. I've had a few questions um, that give you uh, like a, a, a teenager that is going to be started on an antidepressant and the correct answer is Usually fluoxetine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the next one on the list is sertraline. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that sertraline stands out in any meaningful way. Usually the test question, even though this is a wonderful medication, has very little liability side effect wise, yeah. right? The way I, th oh, the other thing with fluoxetine we need to mention is that uh, gigantic half-life, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then sertraline, um, I don't know that it stands out in terms of depression. The one place it used to show up in, in questions that I looked at was that it is not excreted in breast milk, so it was felt to be safe for breastfeeding. And I don't know if uh, that's something that still shows up on shelf exams anywhere. You know, I haven't gotten one about that. I have gotten more sertraline questions related to somebody coming in after being put on sertraline, having GI disturbances, either constipation or diarrhea, and being very concerned about that. And then the question is, well, what do you do as a doctor? And oftentimes the question is, or the answer is reassurance that these are either mild or sometimes you can look at switching to a different SSRI if this is very debilitating. I, I think that the, uh, my experience with that, and I don't know how this scores with the shelf exam, is that uh, it's not always transient. Really? And that, yeah, that, that uh, for some reason the GI symptoms with sertraline do stand out a little more than than for most other people. Um, and changing that medication is very reasonable. I think we talked about proxetine very briefly. I, I think you said that the, uh, the uh, anticholinergic types of answers show up occasionally. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I heard from the two of you that the uh, malformations, the developmental uh, stuff is showing up yet. I think it will eventually. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that shows up sometimes are discontinuation syndromes. Do they, mm -hmm. do you have questions about discontinuation syndrome? Yeah. 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 Um, what I found when I was kind of creating my, my little chart here, um, is that because of its short half-life, you can get the discontinuation, uh, effects pretty quickly. Um, even with just inconsistently taking it at, you know, at certain times of the day. So, um, that was one thing that, that shows up on the shelf um, that I've yeah, seen a couple Angela, times. Angela even read through a question that was pretty insidious about a person who usually takes their medication at noon but waited until three or four, only a couple of hours, yeah. and then started getting, and medical students love buzzwords, so electric shock-like shock. syndrome. As soon as you hear that, even if it's been just a couple of hours, that it is a discontinuation syndrome. Yeah, that, uh, and that was not uncommon. If you think about somebody who also is a rapid uh, D2 metabolite, or not mm. D2, a rapid um, CYP450. Yeah, um, P26, yeah. 2D6, thank you. Yeah. That would increase that. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see, fluvoxamine, 
pretty rarely shows up uh, OCD in, in adolescents, I think, is where you yeah, see that yeah. more, and that's not a depression kind of question. The other thing that you might see is that it has this really odd 1A2 metabolism, which has some interactions with clozapine, but I think those were going to be uh, exam questions for residents, probably not on the shelf. Right. Uh, so Pram. Now, I'm, I'm going to say that I think the pharma reps managed to change the way that psychiatrists think about this medication because I can see on your notes already that it says reduce side effects compared to others. Yep. I don't know that that's actually true. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I think that's lore, but I think it's, I think it's so strongly embedded in people that, uh, that, that you have to be aware that people believe that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every review resources that I've seen is citalopram, and usually the next bullet point is fewest drug-drug interactions. So yeah. I think it's a, fam- it's a favorite amongst a lot of family physicians and a lot of outpatient psychiatrists. Right. And you're talking about escitalopram or citalopram? Citalopram. Citalopram. Yeah, I think escitalopram, they kind of have the, oh, this is even just better. as good. Even and, better. Even yeah. better because of its, its fewer side effects. And, but it still has that, uh, like we mentioned earlier, that dose-dependent uh, QTC prolongation. So a couple of SNRIs. Right. We're going to talk about those now. Interestingly enough, there was a guy named Michael Thace who uh, I was fortunate enough to listen to. He's a guy that is very thoughtful and thinks a lot about antidepressants. He came out, um, I want to say, more than 20 years ago with a very large article saying the SNRIs are better than the SSRIs. Now, the, the challenge with that is he later said, oh, except for escitalopram is, is as good as an SNRI. And he was, <laughs> at the time, paid a lot of money by... Uh, by certain pharmaceutical companies. And so I, I left a little bit skeptical about his later statements. And interestingly enough, I haven't, in, in terms of, quote, winning the war, right? People vote with their feet. Um, people in the clinics are going to use medications that are most often most likely to help out and work. And there hasn't been a clear winner between SNRIs and SSRIs, right? It's not like these have dominated the market because they're so clearly better. Now, in all fairness, these medications were hamstrung a little bit, right? They, they were developed a little bit later, and so the financial costs of starting an SNRI was more than an SSRI. Let's set all of that aside for a moment and just say, generally speaking, there is a belief that SNRIs are somewhat more effective than SSRIs. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's tested. Not and, really. No, I haven't. Uh, I haven't gotten any questions about differentiating the effectiveness of an SSRI and an SNRI. Uh, I've gotten two types of questions with the SNRI of looking back on that triforce of knowing that there's that bonus norepinephrine effects in an SNRI. And then going back in the very high yield side effects to be aware of, especially for um, venlafaxine. Right, and that is probably, I, I think there are two sets of questions here. And, and I want to just point out that even though uh, duloxetine and venlafaxine are very different medications um, with very different side effect profiles, I, I think. I don't know that you can actually think about this as a class as much as you just remember these two are, are sort of oddballs that stick in a quote yeah. class. Because den- venlafaxine has this really odd effect. It's actually an SSRI at low doses mm-hmm. and becomes an SNRI at higher doses. 
somewhere around 150 milligrams, maybe 225 milligrams. And at about in that dose range, you start seeing what? It's uh, hypertension. hypertension. Uh, it, can, it, can, it can increase your uh, blood pressure. And so oftentimes you have somebody with like a 140 over like 90 something that are asking what kind of medications you should put them on. And uh, oftentimes those questions will exclude SSRIs because those are first line and give you an SNRI, especially if a vaccine, and then a TCA. And the idea is avoid the SNRI, uh, specifically venlafaxine. Yes. Yeah, avoid venlafaxine and hypertension. Mm -hmm. So it seems to be that most of the questions are avoid venlafaxine and hypertension rather than where would you use it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, and I, I think that the way that SNRIs are tested are, like we said with venlafaxine, the hypertension, be aware of that. And then for me, um, questions with duloxetine that I've seen are usually... Um, more of a when would you use it um, and you would get a patient with depression diagnosis as well as maybe potentially some diabetic neuropathy some pain um, because that's one good thing that um, I think I think venlafaxine uh, has that as a um, venlafaxine no? doesn't have the same, same indication okay. yeah um, even though you do sometimes see um, you sometimes see where it's pulled into that mm -hmm. because it's an SNRI but I'm not aware that it has the same, has data. same data. At least early on, the data was yeah. very negative for that, which is why I say it's very different than duloxetine. Mm -hmm. And I, I think this, maybe the overarching way to think about this as you say this is, these two medications are all about the comorbidities. Right. Yeah. So if you see a comorbidity, start thinking about how an, SSR, an SNRI might be involved. Mm -hmm. So if you have neuropathic pain or some other pain syndromes, um, then, duloxetine is pulled in. If you right. have hypertension, then you do not pull in venlafaxine. Correct, yeah. So one pulls the uh, SNRI in, the other one pushes the SNRI out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and those those are the two big big uh, question types that I've seen. Um, one, uh, something that I, I haven't seen uh, as a question yet, but that I, I when I was kind of making my chart, uh, duloxetine, I don't know if you can confirm this, has some hepatotoxicity. I haven't, I haven't seen that specifically, okay. no. but I have um, seen the constipation, which you have listed there. Constipation, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it seems to have more constipation than some of the others. Yeah. Um, the other thing that uh, is kind of interesting is I haven't seen any questions about desvenlafaxine. Yeah, no. we. I've seen notes that it's a, it's an it active exists. metabolite, um, so don't be tripped up, but it's mentioned that it pretty much has similar effectiveness, similar contraindications as venlafaxine. So desvenlafaxine is sort of like desipramine. Mm -hmm. It's a metabolite of venlafaxine. It was patented and made as a medication, I think, by the same company that developed venlafaxine. Um, the, these, uh, these SNRIs, uh, particularly venlafaxine, I once had an attending tell me it's a very nice medication, especially at a low dose. It's a very tolerable SSRI, right? Mm -hmm. Even though we think of it as an SNRI. Desvenlafaxine, I don't know that I'm aware of anything other than the same problem that venlafaxine has that it shares with paroxetine, and that is it has this very short half-life mm -hmm. and can create uh, uh, these uh, discontinuation syndromes. Mm -hmm. Now, I also want to point out something, and that is that some of the great advances in, in 
pharmacology aren't always a new medication, but sometimes it's delivery systems. So these short half-life medications required three times a day dosing, I think, uh, when venlafaxine first came out. And then um, these like osmotic pump capsules were developed that allowed yeah. uh, patients to have this dose distributed over a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. Just be aware that having a uh, different delivery system didn't seem to eliminate discontinuation syndrome. So even yeah. if you have an extended release venlafaxine, which is the only thing anybody uses really, that doesn't change the risks, mm -hmm. all right? So extended release formulations don't change that half-life risk. So proxetine and desvenlafaxine and venlafaxine, I believe desvenlafaxine, but I think all three have that same short half-life discontinuation syndrome. Yeah, yeah again, Med students love their buzzwords and electric shock-like <laughs> symptoms. It's it's one of those things that as much as MBME and other test writers want to get away from buzzwords, they they can't because it's the, it's the clinical description. That's how the patients describe it. I had electric yeah. shocks running through my arms. You're right. So, so maybe in this case, it's less of a buzzword than a memorable yeah. symptom report. Yeah. So, so now we've talked about... MAOIs, we've talked about TCAs, we've talked about SSRIs, we've talked about SNRIs, we've talked about the relative improvement in, in each of these. So in the past we had to worry about class and individual medication side effects. Now we don't have so many class things that we have to remember with uh, SSRIs compared to previous class or SNRIs with previous classes. But let's, let's be honest, um, the NNTs just for recovery um, on the SSRIs is somewhere around three to four, and or not recovery, for improvement, right? And the uh, NNTs for recovery are somewhere around six to seven, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's good, that's not great. In other words, for every seven patients that walk into your office, one will have a full recovery with an SSRI or an SNRI because of that treatment. Yeah. That is not the world's greatest outcome, right? right? And so there's there's been this search for continued treatments for depression, and uh, some of these have been serendipitous. Let's talk about um, trazodone and nifazidone. Now, I think nifazidone is gone, right? So these are medications that blocked, if I recall correctly, the serotonin 2 receptor. Yeah. And uh, Nefazidone was actually used a great deal in the VA system. I'm not entirely entirely sure why. I think there was some uh, suspicion that it reduced nightmares in PTSD, mm. so comorbid uh, anxiety from uh, former trauma and depression that is often associated with PTSD, um, or rides shotgun with PTSD, so to speak, um, were treated with this searzone. Uh, nefazidone, I should say, Searzone was the brand name. But then they noticed that there were a lot of problems with muscle mm -hmm. uh, aches, as I recall. And so I don't think nefazidone is really going to show up so much in the market. I think it's used now quite rarely with that boxed warning that showed up. Yeah, I, I know that there's a, a couple of medications, you know, in different specialties that get asked about, um, uh, oh, what's the word? people coming from different uh, countries or having a medical emergency in a different country and then coming back, uh, refugees, uh, and you might get one about somebody who's being treated in a different country 
that got muscle problems or liver failure. And liver failure more often, yeah. And understanding that they might have been on bifazidone. Is, is uh, muscle listed in there or is that one that I'm making up in my mind? You know, the one that uh, our review resources want us to know is hepatotoxicity, so that's the one that's... I think that's the one common. that boxed it, yeah. I think the other thing we saw was that there was a drug-drug interaction between that and... Um, the um, anti, uh, not lipid, the anti, yeah, the anti-lipids, the uh, oh, tri- statins. Statins, thank you. Yeah. I wanted to say triptans because we've been talking about triptans, but mm-hmm. I think there was a drug-drug interaction between that and, this, and the statins, and we saw some of the muscle stuff with that. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's why it came off the market. I think it was all about the liver, the liver issue. Yeah. Uh, trazodone is a little bit uh, more known by students. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a mnemonic uh, that almost all of my students are aware of. Um, does anybody want to throw it out there, or should we just leave it to people's imagination? <laughs> well, I want to point out that an official professional review source that is, has been the gold standard for, for psychiatry clerkship students has put this in there. So it's trazodone can cause you to trazodone. And that's a priapism. So you, I'm blushing if anyone can see this. So, so trazodone is well known for having problems with priapism, and uh, it's used not as an antidepressant very often. Unfortunately, it, it interestingly enough, it came out. There, there's a story I heard once. I don't know how accurate this is. Uh, there were a lot of people that thought this was going to be the next best thing after. TCAs, so if I understand correctly or remember correctly, it came out about the same time as, as fluoxetine. It was unfortunately so sedating for so many people that the doses required for treatment of, um, of depression, just you, you couldn't get people to that dose. So um, I think it was so difficult to find the person that it helped that uh, people kind of gave up on it. Now the, the dark side of this is, and I'll, I'll throw this in as a cautionary tell, the, the uh, psychiatrist that saw that it was maybe safer than TCAs that invested in that didn't get their money. They, they didn't um, turn that into gold, right? And so I, as, as just a general rule, I would say don't ever be aware. If you have a 401k, great, but never consciously invest in pharmaceuticals that you might use. Yeah. Um, because it may not be in, well, it's probably not in your patient's best interest. Uh, so, trazodone disappeared as an antidepressant, sirzone disappeared as an antidepressant, but trazodone is commonly used as a medication for sleep, and I think often without the caveat that, hey, be aware of the risk of priapism associated with this medication. Yeah. I suspect that it is dose-dependent, but don't know that. Yeah, we're not necessarily to- tested too much on dose-dependent kind of questions, except for if there's something very specific, like you were mentioning with venlafaxine of SSRI shifting into an SSRI. More often, I think we see dose dependency stuff in neurotherapeutic windows, yeah. and we've talked about that in other locations. So so those are the specific serotonin receptor molecules. Now, there's one other medic- medication that also blocks 5-HT2, also mm-hmm. blocks 5-HT3, like the antiemetics do, uh, the trip, not the triptans, the uh, like um, chytril and uh, Oh, there's a couple others. I can't remember my names today. Apparently, I didn't sleep very well. Huh? Um, so, so this is mirtazapine, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly enough, mirtazapine. There, there was a study done in Texas. I think uh, Trisha Supis, 
Dr. Supes, and I'm not sure I'm saying that right. Uh, I, I respect her work immensely. I think she was the one that led this, the STEPS um, study in Texas. Oh no, the STAR-D, mm -hmm. not STEPS, uh, STAR-D. And the idea was we can start with citalopram, inexpensive SSRIs. What do we do after that? And they had an interesting uh, protocol set up. I think some of the steps included adding uh, low-dose lithium to the SSRI, adding um, Cytomel, which I think is uh, maybe a low dose of, of uh, thyroid, um, thyroxin, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so forth. In any case, through this stepped treatment, if you don't respond with this, then this, what they found was that probably the most effective medication in treating depression was probably mirtazapine, right? Now, take that with just a little bit of additional information, which is that if you don't have response to the initial antidepressant, having response with the other strategies, it, it was a pretty small benefit, right? You could spend a yeah. long time trying to find what to do next that would actually really help. Right. Um, so, so through all of this, though, what they came to was that probably mirtazapine is the most effective medication they studied. At least that's the way I read, read their data. And yet mirtazapine didn't, quote, win, end quote, either. It didn't replace the SSRIs. We haven't uh, developed, there haven't been a lot of other Me Too people trying to develop 5-HT2 and 5-HT3 antagonists. Now it also has a heteroreceptor activity, so it blocks, I think, the alpha-2 receptor on the presynaptic neurons as well, right? So it has both presynaptic and postsynaptic activity. Yeah. What do you need to know about mirtazapine and why didn't mirtazapine win if it's so good? I think the, the biggest thing with the mirtazapine that I found is one of the side effects, specifically weight gain. Um, a lot of patients had significant weight gain. Like 30 to 40 30 pounds. 30 to 40 pounds, yeah, yeah. on mirtazapine, which um, nobody wants to have happen, and it can be detrimental to your health in, in other, other ways as well. So that and plus, um, I think I found that it, it did have some sedating qualities as well. Very sedating, yeah. There, there, I don't know that it was quite, I think it was similar to trazodone yeah. probably. Um, but but let me put that in context. Some people woke up fine the next morning with trazodone, and some people woke up the next night in time to take their trazodone again, right? Yeah. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but mornings were easily lost mm -hmm. with trazodone. I think the same with yeah. mirtazapine. It was very sedating for some portion of the people. Mm -hmm. Not everybody gained weight, but a lot of people gained a yeah. lot of weight. Yeah. And interestingly enough, this was the only medication that works for some people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the other thing to be aware of is if you have this incredible weight gain, you will sometimes see questions about people who are not eating, right? Now this isn't anorexia, right? This isn't uh, bulimia. This is usually cachectic patients who are having difficulty with cancer and have lost appetite for whatever reason. And so you'll see this in end of life types of questions with some regularity. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. yeah. So questions in which they want you to have a patient, or they, they have a patient that needs depressive symptoms treated, as well as you actually need to put a little bit of weight on them. And the most effective way to do that for both of them is um, mirtazapine. There are a few more antidepressants. What am I missing? You know, speaking about mirtazapine, it has a special place in my heart um, as probably the drug in which I got a question that changed my frame of mind uh, for antidepressant questions in which 
it's kind of an art form. A lot of these questions, I thinking back, started to have, instead of just a patient with symptoms, it was a patient with symptoms and then patients with preferences on how they want to live their life and, and what their, um, and what their, uh, they want and, oh, I'm forgetting the word. Like how the chosen side effect profile of the patient yeah. would be. Their preferences and their, uh, what they're putting forward. You know, there's, in that question for mirtazapine, it was the question wanted to gain, the patient wanted to gain weight. They specifically requested, I feel bad, I haven't been eating, I want to get my life back, I want to gain the weight that I've lost, how can you help me? And so approaching this with antidepressants in which you, you, you have to also understand what the patient wants. Another one to back that up, we haven't talked about Wellbutrin or Bupropion, mm -hmm. several questions in which one of the triggering events that caused a patient to spiral into depressive symptoms is they have been trying so many times to quit smoking. And so the question is, how can you have an antidepressant that also meets this patient's requested uh, effect of helping uh, them quit smoking? So, you know, approaching uh, antidepressant pharmacology questions in this frame of mind of how can we treat the symptoms, but also what does the patient want out of their life and what does the patient need uh, has changed, has helped understand what to, what to prescribe and what to move forward with. So we haven't talked about Wellbutrin, have we? No. Bupropion. bupropion yep. Talk to me about Bupropion. Um, well, Bupropion is um, nor, uh, norepi and dopamine reuptake inhibition, um, which I find interesting because it kind of ignores the serotonin part of the story. Um, but because of that, it actually uh, makes a great uh, add-on therapy for patients that are also already on an antidepressant or an SSR or are on an SSRI. Um, what really they really like to test on for the bupropion is its lack of um, sexual dysfunction side effects. Yeah. Um, and uh, just as a other note, it is weight neutral, so they never really saw patients either lose weight or truly gain a lot of weight um, when they were when they, when they were studying this drug. Um, in addition to some of the side effects, um, there are a couple significant contraindications for bupropion, like uh, active eating disorders, epilepsy, or other seizure disorders, and if they're um, currently on a MAOI. Um, that was a, one that I actually didn't really think about at first um, as to why. Yeah, you still have to watch for yeah. that. All I. Like can do is go back to those podcasts that we had with, I think it was Cam, um, where we talked about how these substances that are often misused that lead to these aggressive ER presentations, mm -hmm. um, the, the monoamine system is a big system. And I yeah. think even though we think about bupropion as being uh, a dopamine um, antidepressant, it, it, these monoamines are more closely related right. than we think. Right. The, the other thing I would add about Wellbutrin, also known as Bupropion, 
I, I use both in this case because buspar and busparone are close together. Those are that is a different medication. Mm -hmm. uh, so so not only do you need to remember smoking cessation, right? That's a yeah. test question that shows up. You need to be aware that you still might get serotonin syndrome. That risk is still listed yeah. in the package insert. But there's also one other place where you cannot use this medication that I don't think you have mentioned. I know that uh, talking about seizures, if you have somebody who's on any sort of stimulant, uh, you're not going to want to put on bupropion either. So somebody who has a seizure syndrome, mm -hmm. uh, hesitancy with that. And then there's also a group that may not have a seizure syndrome that seems to be at high risk for seizures. I think we mentioned this before. So this is patients who are actively vomiting with anorexia, oh, right? Yeah. I, eating I think disorders. Eating disorders. I think bulimia also. There was, yeah. a, there was an attempt at one point to see if antidepressants would help treat eating disorders and uh, a case series of patients with bupropion. This is actually an interesting article. I think they had about 20 patients and a whole bunch of those patients started having seizures. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's not to say that antidepressants can't treat uh, eating disorders. There's actually, we go to SSRIs for that, right? FDA approval says not for anorexia. But for bulimia. For bulimia, you'll yeah. see some FDA approvals. I think fluoxetine has that FDA approval. Yeah. I don't know about the others. I don't remember about the others. A couple of medications that we still haven't talked about, uh, and, and I don't think they show up on the, the shelf exam very often. One is Trintelix. It used to be called Brintelix, but it was too close to some other medication, so the name was changed. This is a medication that... Uh, probably has a lot of different mechanisms of action. Do they differ dramatically from other kind of oddball medications in the sense that they create something really unique, that they've dominated the market? Hard to say this is a medication that still is branded. Uh, another medication along those lines is uh, Velazodone, and that's sometimes, that's uh, brand name is Vibrid. I admit it's a medication that came out after I started working primarily with patients with schizophrenia. The cost was prohibitive enough that we didn't use it. There's not a lot of great data that says that it would be added on to treat negative symptoms like we have with medications like sertraline. So, so I don't know much about those. Do either of those uh, uh, antidepressants show up on the shelf exam that you've seen? No, no, okay. not yet. I think there's some, you know, future tests maybe, but currently nothing there, nothing yet. there yet. I would also add uh, a couple of other medications. So we're leaving devices completely off of this, right? So we're not talking about VNS, we're not talking about ECT, we're not talking about any of the iterations of, of transcranial magnetic stimulation. I think there's been now another approval of Saint modulation, which I think is uh, a podcast that I had uh, with Thomas Chandia about a month or two ago. I think that now has FDA approval. We're sticking just with pharmacological agents. Mm -hmm. And there is one other pharmacological agent I would throw into the mix, and that is esketamine, which has mm -hmm. the FDA approval. Yeah. Do you guys see any questions about esketamine for treatment of depression or acute suicidality yet? You know, as much as many uh, of our colleagues that are involved in ketamine research and uh, as big of a, uh, you know, uh, topic as it is, I haven't seen a lot of ketamine mm -hmm. Uh, in depression. I've seen a couple in anxiety, ketamine effusions for anxiety. Really? Um, in, in, the, in the shelf exam? 
uh, in, in a test review book. I still haven't even gotten a question about it, but it's starting to pop up in the review books. Interesting. Because um, we don't think of ketamine as often with anxiety. We think of it more as a treatment that doesn't increase the risk of suicidality for somebody that's acutely suicidal. And, and I'm hoping, I'm not sure that the S-ketamine trials really gave us the same thing that we thought we were seeing with the, with the ketamine infusions. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's still a, more to the story that's going to show up. Um, but the IV infusions seem to be pretty meaningful for people that are incredibly depressed and might eventually be an alternative to ECT. Mm -hmm. At this point, though, if you have somebody with psychotic depression, we're pregnant, right? We're still looking at ECT rather than a pharmacological mm -hmm. yeah. option. Right. And I was, and I was wrong. Uh, it is unipolar major depression. Oh, flipping back through, yeah. So it was not <laughs> it was not anxiety. I think that uh, I've heard an anecdotal story of somebody having ketamine infusion for anxiety and it working, but that was somebody's anecdotal thing. But it's depression for the review books, and so and that's so far. I I haven't gotten any questions related to ketamine yet, so okay. maybe yeah. maybe in a couple of years they'll start adding those in. Yeah, I, maybe I mean it does that, have yeah. this FDA approval, right? It's yeah. this, this the S-ketamine, which is uh, the nasal insufflation. I think I, it would be incomplete if we didn't mention just a couple of other things. So if you go clear back, uh, I think in the 80s there was a marriage of a I want to say a TCA and a first-gen antipsychotic medication for treatment of depression that wasn't responding to antidepressants. We've seen a couple of other medications that are now treating bipolar depression. We'll leave them out of this discussion. But there are also some FDA approvals for the addition of things like aripiprazole mm -hmm. to antidepressants for efficacy. So this isn't a new story, it's a very old story, but I don't know that it gets tested very much. Do you have questions uh, talking about partial response and needing to be able to add an antipsychotic medication to those? Yeah, yeah, I had that exact question, um, and the answer was add aripiprazole. Yeah. So did not get that one right because I was like, why are we adding an antipsychotic to this treatment? But then I checked my review and yeah. There it is. There it yeah. is. There are only a few antipsychotic medications that have that approval, I think. Um, aripiprazole is definitely one of those, but I don't remember the others. You know, I'm, I'm experiencing more and more questions with psychopharmacology as a whole in which you can start to understand the different combinations based on the pathology that you have. Uh, because probably if you talk to any psychiatrist, part of their job is understanding, like you said, one out of seven is going to, patients walking through your door is going to be able to be treated A-OK -okay with one monotherapy. But First try. Yep. Six out of seven, you're going to start to have to tweak, boost, lower dose doses, add something on, switch. And so because a huge part of psychiatry is tinkering and working with the patient, understanding which things can be combined and what your you know, go for this kind of combinations are, are going to be important. So I'm, I'm going to disagree a little bit. Really? Um, without a great deal of energy or oomph. Um, I'm not sure there's data that supports that, even though that's how I was taught, right? If you're an elegant psychopharmacologist, you can use the side effects of the medications you're using to address the issues in front of you. Mm -hmm. So if somebody came in with depression that included insomnia, reach for an antidepressant that was sedating. Well, I, it turns out that 
if you treat depression effectively, some of that stuff goes away, right? Mm -hmm. so, so I think that elegant psychopharmacology may not be evidence-based psychopharmacology. And the flip side of that is knowing the uh, side effects of a medication might be more about um, informed consent mm -hmm. than it is about you choosing the right medication for the right person. I, I think, for example, if you said, so treating depression seems to solve insomnia in most of the patients that are struggling with difficulties falling asleep. But there are some medications that make people sleepy. Sometimes people start with those. Do you have a preference about, mm -hmm. you know, it, but there are a lot of other side effects with medications. There are sexual side effects mm -hmm. with medications. There are uh, some set of medications have GI side effects. If you were to pick kind of what do you want most the first try, how would you describe that, right? And, and then if it doesn't work, then you say, what do you want to try now, right? As opposed to saying, hey, I think the right choice for you is. Does that yeah. make sense? That makes a lot of sense, especially going back to, you know, approaching these questions with the patient's preference in mind. Uh, right. And a lot of these questions, you know, are giving you big preference signals from, from the uh, patient, whether it's, I want to quit smoking, um, I'm having depression and premature ejaculation, I'm having depression and uh, you know and my libido is down so like all of these different combinations right and and i think the way you approach it is hey we have medications that make libido worse we have yeah. medications that might make that better what are your thoughts yeah. do you want to just whatever's cheapest do you want how do you want to go about this right yeah. so so i and i also think that um the days of elegant psychopharmacology might be a little bit behind us because we now have uh, tools that might be more effective without the the heaviness mm. of of ECT, right? ECT does have some drawbacks. It is uh, still considered to be the gold standard for treatment in some illnesses. Um, but we now have things like esketamine. We have things like uh, TMS. We have maybe psychedelics coming online in a few years, right? Yeah, that's a good point. That's so, a really so good the point. idea of how stuck, right? Because I think as a as a physician, some of these TMS things were just evolving as I as I left private practice where I had a lot of patients with depression and anxiety, and moved to the state hospital. So, so how we go about these things algorithmically? Do you spend two years trying to decide whether you should ultimately go to mirtazapine or not? I don't know the answer to that. I think probably the issue is going to be driven in part by insurance. How quickly would insurance let you go to things like RTMS or yeah. ITMS? That's, that's a really good point. Something that I hadn't considered is possibly a psychiatrist dropping our pride and saying, let's not make this patient suffer for years on end while I figure this out. Uh, like I can, I promise you, I can find the right combination of drugs to figure this out. But going towards more appropriate uh, therapies, right? Figuring out the algorithm if people don't get well with tinkering with SSRIs, SNRIs, and our current current model. There's a very interesting uh, paper that came out, and this will be a little bit of a tease before we close it down. David uh, Brown and I are are working towards a podcast that looks at 
uh, this paper that says the monoamine hypothesis is wrong of depression. Have you guys heard about this paper? No. Yeah. So, so there's this interesting paper that was put out recently, and it uh, it got a lot of press. I think it was on all the uh, major news feeds that one could imagine. MSN, uh, my Google feed had it. Uh, mm. I think the Drudge Report had it. So anywhere you can imagine that would uh, have a news feed had this. I mean, prominently listed monoamine hypothesis of antidepressants is wrong, right? And, and yet it's very clear that these medications help approximately one in seven people. If we were using um, some sort of genetic testing, looking at blood levels, can we increase that to two out of seven? Maybe, I don't know. Um, but clearly this is the, the monoamine hypothesis, or at least medications that are largely centered on monoamines, right? Not, not the full answer, clearly yeah. not the full answer. Now, these medications still are quite effective for a lot of people, right? Even a third of the people that take these medications get some benefit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a common final pathway. In any case, um, I think the article made the, the case that since the, I think they said actually, I think they actually went after the serotonin hypothesis of depression, mm -hmm. right? Um, so ev even if uh, the serotonin hypothesis of depression is if there's one cause of depression, right? E even if that's not true, I think we're going to have a little bit uh, more in-depth podcast about this article and what it means and the conclusions and how the authors came to those conclusions and what is the accuracy in the article and what is maybe not the accuracy from our perspective of that article that mm. made headlines across the world. Well, it's reminding me of last week's podcast we did on the dopamine hypothesis. You can't just say that the dopamine hypothesis is wrong, period, because we have evidence for the antipsychotic medications work. So it's not the complete story for sure, but we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, well, I'm going to have to use that proverb for the, the students that have worked with me before. We're always looking for proverbs. Help me remember that next Monday, William. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and close this podcast down. Is there anything I haven't asked you about? Are there any high-yield areas that maybe we should have mentioned that we missed along the way? Um, just a couple of things um, that I struggle with um, in a little bit of the, the separation of clinical practice versus shelf slash boards land. There are a few things um, we had a, a great talk with another psychiatrist, Dr. Rainer, yesterday um, about treating depression and um, you know, how long do you trial an antidepressant before you, you switch? And in, on testing and in boards, it's, it's the solid six weeks, four to six yeah. weeks you have to try it. Whereas, you know, in, in real life, if they haven't seen any improvement in a couple weeks, you're, you're probably going to think about switching that medication to something else. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've, I've heard rumors, and I haven't seen the articles myself, um, that suggest you can see that signal more quickly than the standard four to six weeks. I think that four to six weeks came, um, the, w the way I understood this, and somebody knows better, let me know. But looking at antidepressant trials, right? So there were a lot of antidepressant trials that started in the 80s. These are somewhat different than the, hey, I tried this on my neighbor kind of stuff that we talked about with, uh, <laughs> with some of the early antipsychotic medications. So these are uh, pharmaceutical companies looking for Me Too medications like fluoxetine. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of trials done on antidepressants. And my impression is that generally those trials went about a month 
and that most of the time they, or maybe even six weeks, and that by a month you picked up most responders. So this wasn't how, you know, this wasn't like a, a study designed to look at the question, how long do you watch for this? Mm-hmm. So, so our, at least the answer for the shelf comes out of when did right. we see effect in antidepressant trials, right? Yeah. And, and I think there's some data looking at those answers differently now, and that may be out that suggests that two weeks might be a better answer, yeah. but for the shelf, that answer is four to six four weeks, to six right? Weeks, yeah, because I think uh, we we discussed that STAR-D uh, study, and and they one of the things that came out of that study was more clinical uh, practice and, and knowledge, and I think it was around that two to three week mark. If you saw absolutely no improvement in symptoms, then zero, right? Zero, zero. Yeah. If they if you see any improvement at you know any time before those six weeks, keep it going. You know, maybe keep, keep it going. Keep it going yeah. and and things like that. But for for the test, if you, I had one that specifically the patient said no improvement in symptoms, and my answer was let's try something else, and it had only been three weeks, so Boardland <laughs> said nope, <laughs> keep him on it for six weeks. <laughs> yeah, I try yeah. to be really careful about some of the things along those lines that I talk about in morning meeting when I'm quizzing you guys about this is the shelf exam, this is what I think different than the shelf exam, yeah. here's why I think differently about that but I try to be pretty careful because that shelf exam is pretty tight, right? Yeah. It, it really focuses on what tends to be the best evidence. Mm-hmm. And and one of the other things that tends to focus on are those package inserts, right? The right. prescribing uh-huh. information. Yeah. yeah, for the psychiatry exam, it's package inserts and the DSM. And if you, if you stick to those two resources, you're gonna get a lot of questions. Yeah. You'll be able to pass that shelf exam. Yeah. yeah. Any then, other highlights that I may have missed? Um, I don't know if from my perspective if we've missed anything, but um, just something that I, I've i struggled with kind of figuring out a way to categorize a lot of these medications. And so for, for me, understanding a little bit of the timeline and development of the medications kind of has given me uh, some broad categories to, to kind of lump them in and, um, and allow, has allowed my brain to kind of interpret them and, and be able to better answer questions about you know, why don't we use the, the TCAs anymore? Well, it's because you have all these risks of over, you know, overdose, you know, lethality and things like that. And the SSRIs are, are you know, a lot better um, for that reason and have very similar efficacies, but they all each kind of have their own little, little tidbit about them. Um, so I think just keeping that straight um, and just repeating those questions and drilling that in is what's going to really solidify that for the exam. Yeah. We were hoping to find a way to remember the medication names a little bit easier. You didn't find a pathway I for that. I have not found a pathway for that. I'm still looking for a mnemonic or just something. Um, I know, um, just kind of remembering, I think the biggest medications under each category, like TCAs, amitriptyline is kind of the, really the one and only that they like to test on. I've seen nortriptyline pop up a couple of times, but those are very similar. Tylene, maybe. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. the Y, you know, something with the Y. But then, uh, and I tried to do SSRIs. I was like, oh, well, you've got fluoxetine, peroxetine, maybe something with Xs, but that but doesn't really... Then you really, have uh, S-citalopram, yeah. bottom of that. Yeah, and those aren't mm-hmm. even Enes, they're, they're prams. Prams or AMs. They're AMs, yeah. so... Um, the clo- I, will, I will let you all know if I figure that out. Yeah. The closest I've gotten to... Remember, remembering names has not been any sort of memory device, but in our first year we had our microbiology unit talked, uh, taught by Dr. Small, which mm-hmm. I thought was pretty ironic, that was really funny, but yeah. 
his uh, his recommendation to approach bacteria and viruses was give them a personality, talk mm-hmm. about them in kind of a he, she, they, them kind of thing that their side effects and stuff like that had, you know, you know, a persona given to it, and sometimes that helped stick better. And I've tried a little bit with uh, psychiatric pharmacology, um, giving some of these drugs more personality, and it's, you know, mixed results, but if that helps in, in talking about these drugs kind of like old friends, maybe you can remember it a little bit better. Two comments to that. First of all, I think you may have heard me say this. You're dating the medication. You're not married to it. And if you think about somebody dating the medication, very patient-centered, right? And the characteristics of the person they're dating or the medication (laughs) they're dating, maybe that helps. The second thing is I've had a lot of students who have felt like um, sketchy is helpful. And I think there's a sketchy farm now. Is that correct? There is. Yeah. And, and perhaps that's a place because I think this is ultimately going to come down to name recognition mm-hmm. as opposed to um, some sort of pattern recognition, right. which is where I'm at my worst. So I'm not very helpful there. And if you're an office fan, the SSRI sketchy is based off of the office, the show. So, I mean, there's a TV show called the office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the word Dunder Wifflin or whatever it comes yeah. from, right? Dunder Mifflin? Dunder Mifflin, yeah. All right. On that note, with my ignorance about The Office and uh, Seinfeld, we'll, <laughs> we'll get... Uh, uh, what do you take away from the podcast? Let's see, who went first last time on their final note on the podcast? You did? So go ahead, Angela. What's your uh, final takeaway? Um, I think my final takeaway, um, there's a kind of like, you know, two different categories. There's the board category, which we've kind of addressed, I think, a lot, um, which I think will be very helpful for a lot of people. And then um, one thing that that kind of stuck out to me with uh, a lecture we had from another psychiatrist, Dr. Rayner, yesterday, um, he asked us, what's the best treatment for depression? (laughs) And we all kind of looked at him and he says, the one that the patient will participate in. So I think that's where we kind of have to draw all of our, you know, different modalities, you know, is our patient very heavily in medications work hundred, you know, they're very positive in that the medication will work great. Let's give them an antidepressant medication. If they're a bit more skeptical, uh, skeptical about medications then maybe uh, the psychotherapy aspect or the CBT, you know, those types or a device. of, or a device, that's a discussion we have with the patient and we have, as physicians, we have to gauge their interest in, you know, medications in, in, in psychotherapies and in devices to see how best we can address their depression. And I think that's, that was a big takeaway for me. And I think that applies to a lot of medicine as well. That's really a great, uh, that's really a great way of thinking about it. What is it that works, right? And how do I, it, it can't work if the patient doesn't engage and that's probably right. the first step, right? Well, no medication is going to work if the patient doesn't take it. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, all right, Joshua. Yeah, I just to echo Angela's comments, you know, sometimes when we're prepping for board exams and shelf exams, we, we forget why we're here and that is to learn how to be a doctor and learn how to take care of our patients. And, and going back to understanding the story behind these patients and understanding that they have lives and preferences and and they have these ideas of who they want to be and one of our obligations as doctors is to have that beneficence to do good to help them in the best way that we can be able to obtain their goals so when you see somebody with a mood disorder 
don't skip to the end and just pick an SSRI or pick what you think should be first line. You know, read further into the question and in your future practice, ask them about what they want, their goals for this therapy, what they want and, and uh, try to be better at tailoring, like we were talking about, tailoring those therapies to, to meet with that patient's life. Be a, be a help, not a stumbling block. So my take home, I've got a couple. First is the SSRIs and SSRI, SNRIs and maybe well butrin slash bupropion seem to have won. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. In a sense, these are the medications you see when you're in primary care practices watching what physicians dispense. So why did they win? They're safe and easy to manage. Tolerability. Benefit, benefit, right? Yeah, and uh, so I, so I think that I've never quite thought about medications that way, and why hasn't there been really anything earth-shattering that dominated the market since the '80s when fluoxetine came out? That's 40 years. That's yeah. that's uh, the 30 years before fluoxetine had one wave, right? Well, the, I guess there wasn't a lot that changed the TCAs and the the uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, and then SSRIs, and for 40 years now, we really haven't had a, a change, a, a break away from that in a way that something has dominated the market. And I think the market tells you a lot about what's working, right? People vote with their feet and their pocketbooks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing that I, I had as a takeaway, I have a tendency to say what works for me will always work. I don't need to find something better. I do this well. And if I can learn how to tweak what I do well, that should be good. And that's, I think, one of the great things about doing these podcasts is I've had students bring things in that clearly I need to be better at, right? And the quote that was in one of the articles I read was, uh, this, the I'm not going to quote it because it doesn't flow very well as a quote, but the prevailing attitude at the time of the development of the TCAs was that it was implausible that a drug alone could treat depression. And the way it was said was sort of like, well, of course a drug could treat depression. But I would change that. I, I think that a prevailing attitude uh, theory for a while was that an SSRI alone could treat depression, mm-hmm. right? And that's not accurate. I mean, the, these medications, and yet I, I'm stuck in the paradigm that medications do treat everything, but that's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. That's just so clearly wrong because devices treat depression, psychotherapy treats depression, lifestyle modification. Maybe, Could potentially maybe. we we had this mm. conversation about exercise oh, okay. right yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, there seems to be some data that exercise uh, might treat depression I think the uh, there's a lot of people that want that to be very effective um, and again going back to the therapy that your patient will participate <laughs> in yeah, um, however I, I I just the thing that I liked about this podcast was that it got me again it helped remind me that I don't need to be stuck in what today's treatments are, even though I need to understand both today's and yesterday's treatments and be willing to embrace tomorrow's treatments. That was kind of my take home. Yeah. On that note, 
thank you so much for a very interesting podcast. It's rare that I get to put down. This is a high yield podcast through and through, right? I, <laughs> yeah. I suspect that there will be a lot of students that, that listen to this podcast hoping to find uh, outcomes or, or at least help for shelf exam related questions and content. And so thank you very much for developing the podcast. I liked it very much. And we'll see where next week takes us. We'll have David Brown here. And I think the podcast on the uh, the wrongness of the serotonin hypothesis will be a podcast probably in two weeks. But I think we'll also have a podcast next week. So stay tuned. Yeah, I'm excited. On that note, team out. Team out. Team out. Team out.